2006, February 13th, Lecture 27, Spirals, Ellipticals, and Irregulars. The Hubble classification sequence will begin in just a moment. And we'll be ready to begin. Now today's lecture is continuing along the study of the Milky Way and other galaxies. And one of the things that you probably begun to pick up as, as a consequence of these lectures, this is a very different topic than when we talked about individual stars. We're still in the what is it describe it phases of this work. And one of the reasons for that is galaxies are very different beasts than individual stars. A star is a very nice, simple in physical system. It's self-contained by its own gravity. It rarely, if ever, interacts with its surroundings. And its physics is pretty well understood. I can tell you a complete story of everything from the birth of stars all the way up to the death and what happens to the remnants of stars. I can't tell such a simple story for galaxies. Not because galaxies are difficult to understand. In fact, physics of galaxies is very simple. It's just gravity at some fundamental level. But what makes them so complicated is, is galaxies are not single entities like stars. They're systems, very complex systems, governed by the laws of gravity on very large scales. And so as a consequence, as we're going to see, sort of laid out this week, various aspects of it still defy a simple explanation. I can't draw an HR diagram for galaxies in the same way I did for stars. I can't map out their evolution in the same way with a very simple set of physical pictures. It's a lot more difficult process. So what we're going to see today is not going to answer as many questions as we saw with stars. We're going to have to build up a lot more description and description of physics before we can go on. And in fact, I can't complete the story of galaxies until we know something about how the universe itself physically works and evolves because the evolution of galaxies is inextricably linked to the expansion of the universe, as we're going to see through the next few weeks. So today's lecture is going to be in that mode of what is it, describe it, and try to get a handle on some of the physics that governs the different types of galaxies. And so the lecture today is entitled Spirals, Ellipticals, and Irregulars, Oh My. The key ideas are as follows. Today we're going to to first introduce the primary means by which we classify galaxies, which is the Hubble classification of galaxies. It's a threefold classification into spirals, which divide into ordinary and barred spirals, ellipticals, and irregulars. And we'll describe each of these three types and their properties through the lecture. What's going to turn out to be important for understanding why there are three fundamentally different types of galaxies is that these are three different types of objects which have very different stellar and gas content overall. They're going to have very different star formation histories because what is a galaxy after all than, other than a simply a large self-gravitating assembly of anywhere from millions to hundreds of billions of stars. And they're going to have some differences in their internal motions and in their internal kinematics, the orbits of the stars that we see on them. Finally, we're going to show you the final class of galaxies relatively recently discovered. Actually, we've known about examples of this for the better part of a century. But their importance to the story of galaxy formation has only recently become clear, and that is the subject of dwarf galaxies. And we'll introduce them just towards the end. These are going to turn out to be the fundamental building blocks out of which we think larger galaxies are in fact assembled. So in order to understand how we, how we classify galaxies, how we do this, you know, you sit in the back. There's plenty of seats down in here in front, all, all over the place. Besides, the fire marshal gets upset if you sit on the floor. Hubble, Hubble, Edwin Hubble, who did a lot of the work, who determined what the distances to galaxies were, also through the 1930s made a systematic study of galaxies by photographing them primarily with the 100-inch telescope at Mount Wilson. 
And what he noticed in his photographs and taking in a collection of photographs from people who had undergone, undertaken this exercise early in the 20th century is that galaxies tended to fall into three basic types according to their shape. We refer to the shape classification as a morphological classification. It's a description, much in the same way that you might describe people or you might describe buildings by their shape, without actually having made reference to physically what the differences are. You talk about round buildings, tall buildings, short and squat buildings, things like that. The same is going to be true of galaxies. Galaxies form three fundamental types. We've already met one of those types, the spiral galaxies, because the Milky Way and Andromeda are, in fact, beautiful examples of spiral galaxies, one of which the Milky Way we live in. It turns out that about 75% of bright galaxies are of the spiral class. The next class are objects called elliptical galaxies. They're very featureless. They're called, given this name because they, in fact, look elliptical in shape on the sky. They vary from round to slightly squashed ellipses. And they make up about 20% of the galaxies in the sky. Finally, of bright galaxies, and I've underlined the word bright here, there is a class of relatively rare bright irregular galaxies. These are galaxies which defy classification as either a disk-like spiral or a fat, bulgy elliptical galaxy. Now, there's an additional class of galaxies we're going to meet at the end, which Hubble did not fully recognize, called the dwarf galaxies, which turn out to be numerically the most common type of galaxies. And they're going to fall into two types. There are going to be dwarf ellipticals and dwarf irregulars. There are not going to be any dwarf spirals, which isn't, at least so far as we know, and this is an important clue as to the role of dwarfs in the overall physics of galaxies. Now, the basic classification system that we use here today and that I'm going to introduce was introduced in the 1930s by Edwin Hubble and refined over the subsequent 30 or 40 years. The modern system of galaxy classification differs only in, in fine details that just simply are not going to interest us. So I'm not going to go into the de Vaucouleur classification and so forth. Really, it was one of Hubble's later protégés, a man by the name of Alan Sandage, whose astronomer is still alive, still working at the Carnegie Observatories in Pasadena, California, who really brought into the full culmination the Hubble classification sequence of galaxies. We now have Hubble classifications for literally thousands of galaxies. The way Hubble organized his classification scheme is very instructive. I've shown it schematically here. There are lots of cartoons of this in your book and others. It was called the Hubble tuning fork diagram. Now, what I'm showing you here is essentially Hubble's 1936 tuning fork. There have been modern filigrees upon this particular theme, but they aren't that interesting to us. Hubble actually envisioned his classification scheme as an evolutionary scheme for galaxies. He believed he could discern galaxies into early types and late types, younger systems in the process of forming and older systems that were more and more evolved. It turns out that, as we know today, Hubble actually got it almost completely backwards. But his system was so vaguely defined that even though we don't respect the physical ideas behind it, the utility of it as a basic shape classification are very useful. Hubble saw the ellipticals running from almost perfectly circular, which he thought were almost perfectly spherical, to fairly flattened as forming the handle of the tuning fork. These he called the early type galaxies. In fact, we still retain that language early type and late type in galaxy research, although we no longer mean it in terms of an evolutionary sequence. At the final E7, where things got pretty flat, an E7 galaxy has about a 3 to 1 aspect ratio, the classification of spirals bifurcated into two parallel branches. The ordinary spirals, which he called S for spiral, which were then given le letter subclasses A, B, and C, 
which have subsequently been added to D, and then, of course, intermediate, A, B, and C, D, and stuff like that. These have relatively round, almost spherical bulges. They look kind of like E0 galaxies, but flattened a bit along the rotation axis, and then sprouting spiral arms that get progressively more open as you go from the SA up through SC. The bulge gets smaller, the spiral arms get bigger, and they get a much more wide open pattern. The second parallel sequence he called the barred galaxies. The bulge now in the middle, instead of appearing round, actually appears elongated, very elongated. Sometimes even looks like it sprouts handles and got termed a bar, basically, like a bar of steel or something like that. And the spiral arms appear to emanate from the ends of the bar. The bar shrinks in size as we go from A through C class. The SB is for spiral barred, ABC, or barred spiral for, for the right way to say it in English. And then again, just like in the parallel sequence of spirals, the spiral arms get progressively stronger and open up. What we're really seeing is a progression of strength of bulge versus disk across here. As we saw last Friday, spiral galaxies have a, a central bulge or spheroid and a disk. And the relative strengths of those two is what establishes the ABC classes across here. Whereas ellipticals are all bulge. They have no disks, as we're going to see. So this is a very simple way of classifying galaxies, and it turns out to be fairly useful for sorting things out. Despite the fact that almost every galaxy in the universe is unique in many ways, just like snowflakes are unique, we can still classify them into basic groups which actually have a lot of common physics. So let's walk through the various classes here. The first of these are the elliptical galaxies, and I've shown a beautiful example of this from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. They show little or no internal structure inside of them. They're elliptical in shape, as the name implies. They do not have a disk. They do not have spiral arms, or do they have dust lines. So they, they look essentially like the bulges of spiral galaxies, superficially, with the disk stripped away. Now, it turns out that that, that it resemblance is, in fact, superficial in certain very important regards. A, a elliptical galaxy is not just simply a bulge without a disk. It actually is a dynamically slightly different system. If we look at this, these, especially through the Hubble Space Telescope or the nearest by examples where I can begin to resolve it into individual stars, or I look at the collective population, what I find is that ellipticals are composed entirely of bright red stars, mostly red giants, K giants and M giants, things like that. We're seeing the giant branch, but we're not seeing supergiants, and we're not seeing bright blue main sequence stars. So we're looking at an ancient, evolved population. In that regard, it does resemble the bulges of galaxies, and they are very metal-rich on average. Now, we classify ellipticals into subtypes by the degree of flatness. There's no need to sit in the phone. There's plenty of seats out here. This E0 is the circular version all the way up to E7. E7 would have a short axis to long axis ratio of about 1 to 3 in round numbers. So this 3 to 1 aspect ratio is getting so flat that I almost can't distinguish it from a nearly edge-on spiral galaxy of the SA or SAB to SBA type. So E7 is a pretty rare classification. It's often a transitional class between the ellipticals and the spirals. Now, the details of how you assign that number are really rather unimportant. It's just a little formula that we apply. We don't take it too seriously. And in fact, remember, what we see on the sky, it's kind of hard to ascribe shape to these. And this is a good picture because you'll notice it has a very, very bright center. It has a yellowish-red appearance. They've got, the person who put this together, 
these, this beautiful set of pictures together, has gone to a lot of trouble to get the colors balanced about right. And so you see there's kind of yellowish-red tinge to it. This is a signpost of very old evolved stars. They're fairly metal-rich, and in cases where we can actually see those populations, they're consistent with red giants. You'll also notice how it's very bright in the center and just sort of fades out. It doesn't really have a sharp edge to it. And that's exactly what ellipticals in a lot of galaxies are like. They simply fade into the night. It's only if they're very close to each other where you can actually feel the gravitational force of companion galaxies do you begin to distort the outer edges and cut them off tidally. So for the most part, galaxies are just great, elliptical galaxies are great big stellar puffballs held together by the mutual gravity of all their stars. Here's another beautiful picture. Unfortunately, the photographer did not go to a lot of trouble to get the color balance, so it appears bright white. This is a bright elliptical out in the constellation of Virgo called M87. This is an example of an E1 galaxy. It's kind of hard to measure the shapes of ellipticals. We have to play games with computer processing to do it with any precision. Here's some examples of an E1 and an E5. You can again see how the E5 is somewhat flattened compared to the rounder E1. And again, similar, uh, similar properties. They're fairly reddish-yellowish. They don't have any dust lanes. They don't have any spiral arms. They're kind of featureless fuzzballs. Now, this featureless aspect of ellipticals is very deceptive. As we've learned in the last few years, ellipticals actually have very rich, detailed structures internally. It just isn't as obvious. They're much more muted. Sometimes you even see weak little disks, but those disks are very, very odd. They don't belong there. They're dynamically very separate. And they may, in fact, be the remnants of stellar galactic collisions that have occurred which we're going to see in a little bit of detail in the next couple of days. Now, the ordinary spirals are called type S, just a big capital S all by itself. These are classified according to the relative strength of the central bulge of older stars, like we see in our own galaxy, and the tightness of the spiral arms. A really large bulge with tightly wound spiral arms is A, all the way up through small bulges with very, very large dominant disks and wide open spiral arms. The basic subtypes are given subtype little letters, SSA, SB, and SC. The SA are those with very, very big bulges, very, very tight spiral arms, and the bulge actually dominates the disk light for the most part. The spiral arms, in some case, can actually fade to the point that they're almost indistinct. You've got to take very deep photographs and tweak the contrast in Photoshop until you can actually see the detailed spiral structure. SB is kind of an intermediate type. It's kind of halfway between tight and indistinct. And the SCs, which, like the example I've shown here on the right, has a very small galactic bulge and a huge blue disk with these wide open, beautiful spiral arms. And the SBs kind of land in between. You also notice there's a lot of dust in here. It basically runs through these pictures like little thin, sort of thin tendrils. This is another feature of spiral galaxies. They have a lot of gas in them. This is the SA, SB, and SC classifications now laid out side by side. We see an SA galaxy which has a very strong prominent bulge. You can barely see the spiral arms here. They're so tightly wound they practically wrap back on the galaxy. But you can make out the dust from them and that often gives you a little bit of contrast to see with. A good example of a nearby SB galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy. Again, the bulge is somewhat smaller than we get in an SA. And again, the spiral arms are starting to open up. They become more and more of a prominent feature. And what's nice about Andromeda, because it's close enough that we can actually begin to resolve individual stars, is you see how the disk is very blue and the bulge is very, very red. It's older, evolved, metal-rich stars. 
in the central bulge, brand new, very, very young, unevolved stars, blue main sequence stars in the disk. Finally, this lovely SC galaxy shown here face on has a little tiny bulge inside and a huge dominant disk. And it shows these bright, big, wide open pinwheel spiral structure that's sort of your, you know, kindergarten crayon picture of a galaxy is definitely like what it, most people think of is actually tends to be a type SC galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy, by the way, probably lies intermediate between the SB and the SC class. Now, whether or not the Milky Way actually has a bar is something of a matter of controversy and could, in fact, be intermediate between the barred and the ordinary class, which brings us to barred galaxies. This is a subtype of spirals, which is distinctive because the bulge is relatively round, but then there's a sort of bar here. You notice how there's a straight, linear feature. You can see where the spiral arms, which are wide open here, suddenly kink in here and follow nearly straight lines unlike the gentle curvature that you saw in the other spiral galaxies where it seems to swirl all the way down into the center. This central bulge is elongated. It's like an e, almost more like an E6 or an E7 elliptical galaxy in shape. But again, notice it's yellowish red color. That's a signpost of very evolved red giant stars. And then you can see this sort of pile up here. It almost gives the appearance like someone's put a couple handles on there. And then the spiral arms appear to emanate from that bulge. In round numbers, there are about as many barred galaxies as ordinary spirals. And in fact, if you go into the infrared, that number may climb to as much as 75% if you're fairly generous by what you define as a bulge. This is some work that my colleagues and I did here at Ohio State a number of years ago using new infrared camera technologies. So bars turn out to be a fairly important dynamical feature in these galaxies. This bar is a stellar bar. It's basically an elongated distribution of bright stars has some interesting properties. Last time we saw that spirals in their disks tend to be in differential rotation and you only get solid body rotation in the inner parts. Bars, on the other hand, look as if they're in solid body rotation. In fact, they tumble end over end like a football that's been kicked towards the goalposts. And literally, we've, we, we can measure the velocities and so you get the impression, especially when you do computer models, which can speed up the motion because, you know, it takes about you know, 100 million years or so to go around the circle once here. So you're not going to watch one of these tumble. But you can do computer simulations, and they literally, they tumble end over end. And the spiral arms tend to emerge off the end. That bar tumbling end over end acts kind of like a propeller in a bathtub. It basically is going to sit there and stirs up the disk and could, in fact, excite waves moving outwards from that central place that actually excite the spiral arms in these galaxies. And this is borne out by computer simulations of what the arms should look like. So what you're seeing are is waves of density, basically, of stars piling up, emanating outward from this churning bar as it passes through the gas in the disk, clouds collide, collapse, and form stars. And so the arm waves are brought up in very high contrast in this galaxy, this beautiful picture from the Hubble Space Telescope, by hot young OB stars, H2 regions, and of course, dust and gas, the raw materials out of which stars form. Now, we use exactly the same parallel subclass system for the barred galaxies as for ordinary. This galaxy here is a classic type SBC. It's really hard to say this in words because there's no way, we don't inflect our language so that capital B sounds different from lowercase b. So what I'd call this is a barred type C, barred type B, barred type A, and so forth. Just to, because, you know, SBB just doesn't make any sense. 
So this is a classic SBC galaxy. It's got a fairly small bulge. It's got a very big dominant bar, but wide open spiral arms. The Milky Way is thought to have a relatively weak bar. I would say I'm about 80%, 85% convinced of that data. It's really hard to do the observations because we're writing in the Milky Way. But it looks to be a fairly weak bar. So in fact, the Milky Way's classification in some people's minds is S capital B, little bc. That depends upon how open we think the spiral arms are and how big or dominant that central bar is. Some people think it's actually a transitory bar, one of these weak bars that lands in this weird nether zone between the ordinary and barred spirals. If I sound like I'm using vague language, having tried to actually classify a few hundred galaxies from from digital images, I can tell you it's, it's really an art. I've got some friends of mine who do this really do this for thousands upon thousands of galaxies. And you really do begin to recognize the types. But it's a very subjective classification. And it's kind of frustrating because in science we like to have things we can quantify. You can think you can do this with a computer numerically. People have been trying now for 25 years to teach computers how to classify galaxies. It doesn't work very well. It turns out that your brain is an absolutely remarkable image processing system and can pattern recognize really well. We still haven't cracked the problem of how to teach a computer to pattern recognize. So it's still going to be kind of this vague, descriptive language because we've never found a way to really quantify it. Quantitative classification systems have all fallen by the wayside as unusably complicated. Here's a nice gallery of barred spirals. Here's a SBA galaxy here. This is actually viewed at kind of an angle. The bar actually runs along the diagonal here. And then again, you see very tightly wound spiral arms. There's also kind of weak outer arms there. Here's an SBB galaxy, a bar in the middle, and the spiral arms come off it. And then this beautiful SBC with these very wide open, classic, you know, cartoon picture pinwheel spiral galaxy. The final type are the irregulars. Hubble actually didn't really have an irregular class per se. It was added in years after Hubble for those galaxies that just plain don't fit. They're not elliptical. They're not featureless fuzzballs. And they're not obviously disk, bulge and disk with spiral arms galaxies. They're just, well, they're irregular and chaotic and just big piles of stars kind of all just bunched up. They don't have any systematic rotation or very little evidence of systematic rotation. Some do, some don't. But they just don't have any normal shape, and they range all over the place. In many ways, the irregular is a a catch-all class that was proposed because there were certain galaxies that just simply resisted and defied simple classification. Some of them have bars, some of them have disks, a lot of them don't. So the irregular is basically where you put a galaxy when you don't know how to classify it. Now, it turns out that some of those irregular and peculiar galaxies have an explanation. Others do not. So again, it's kind of this catch-all class. Now, there turns out to also be a significant population of dwarf irregular galaxies. And in fact, irregular galaxies of the dwarf type become more and more common as you go down and down to fainter sources. We'll call these type I for big, bright irregulars but they get called a DI for dwarf irregular if they're little guys actually kind of like this one where literally you can count the stars. They consist of millions or hundreds of millions of stars rather than something like the Milky Way or a giant elliptical which have hundreds of billions to trillions of stars in their content. And it really is the number of stars and sort of the aggregate brightness that defines the difference between bright and dwarf. Here's a couple of very pretty pictures of 
irregular galaxies. These are actually companion galaxies to our own Milky Way. The Large Magellanic Cloud here, which has a bar and appearances of a disk, but it's god-awful chaotic looking. Which you can see this, both this one, the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds, are visible with the naked eye from the Southern Hemisphere. They appear as faint, fuzzy patches of light. This is a beautiful picture on the left here of the Large Magellanic Cloud by amateur astronomer Lok Kuntan, who's taken some of the most beautiful pictures. These things look fuzzy because they're resolved into individual stars. This, this galaxy is only 50 kiloparsecs away. It orbits our Milky Way like the Moon orbits the Earth. The Small Magellanic Cloud is an even smaller, and it, well, okay, it kind of defies any shape classification. To give you an idea of its brightness, there's a globular cluster. So this thing is pretty faint and thin compared to the bright core of a globular cluster, which is a cl this cluster has probably got a few hundred thousand stars in it. The Large Magellanic Cloud probably has a few tens of millions of stars. This is a beautiful picture taken by a pair of amateur astronomers in Germany, Josh Hampsch and, and uh, Robert Gendler. Um, beautiful examples of irregular galaxies right next door. They tend to be relatively small. You don't find irregular galaxies as big as spirals or ellipticals, and in fact, they can turn out to be very small indeed. Let's look at some of the other properties. Those were just descriptions. What did they look like? Let's actually go out and do some measurements. We can measure the mass of spiral galaxies by measuring their rotation curves, like we saw last Friday. We can measure their diameters. It's a little tricky because they're fuzzy edge. So what we do is we go out to the diameter where the brightness of the galaxy fades into the point that it begins to blend into the background sky. We go out to a standard brightness level and measure the size inside there. Now, clearly, the galaxy sort of peters out from there, but that should measure most of the light. And finally, we can measure the luminosity by inside that same circle that I used to describe the size, simply add up the light from all the stars and call that the total luminosity. For a spiral galaxy, the masses tend to range between a billion and a trillion times the mass of the sun, 10 to the 9 to 10 to the 12M sun. Diameters range from about 5 kiloparsecs for the smallest early type spirals all the way up to 50 kiloparsecs for some extremely large, very low surface brightness spirals with really wide spiral arms. So 5 to 50 kiloparsecs. The Sun, I'm sorry, the Sun, the Milky Way's diameter is about 30 kiloparsecs, and remember that the Sun is about 8 kiloparsecs out from the center. The luminosity of these things, which is the aggregate sum of all their starlight, ranges from about 10 to the 8 to 10 to the 11 times the luminosity of the Sun which is consistent with the fact that these things contain a few hundred billion stars. Now you say, well, why isn't it a hundred billion times the luminosity of the sun? That would be 10 to the 11 for everything. And the answer is because most of those stars are red dwarfs, which are very, very faint. So the total light, the total number of stars, is actually dominated by red dwarfs, which contribute very little to the light. Most of what you see in the light of spiral galaxies is the O and B stars and then the K and M supergiants from the older evolved, cl evolved classes. The stars like the sun actually are a minority contributor. Even though there's a lot of them, the giants and the supergiants are so much brighter. The structure and dynamics, well, we've already seen this. So this is kind of a review. It's got a, a broad, thin disk, which makes up most of its diameter, and then a spheroid, the bright inner portion of this, which is called the bulge, and then the outer spheroid outlines the halo. The disk is supported by relatively rapid rotation. The speed of rotation of a star like the sun is a couple of 100 kilometers a second, so the disks all rotate around with beautiful differential rotation patterns at a few hundred kilometers a second. 
And the spheroid is puffed up by fairly random motions. Remember that there are very long elliptical orbits, retrograde orbits, and prograde orbits at all levels of inclination in the halo. That was the distinction between population one and population two. Population two stars, like the halo stars, are all found out in the, in the halo and bulge. Population one stars, like the sun, are the disk population, rolling around with ordered motions. So I see a mix between ordered rotation and kind of puffy elliptical shape motions. Elliptical galaxies, their masses range from about 100,000 times up to 10 to the 13 times the mass of the sun. The very largest galaxies in the universe are also very, very large ellipticals, and they include some very small dwarf galaxies that are getting to be down to the sizes and masses of globular clusters. The diameters range from about 1 up to 200 kiloparsecs. Some of these things are just huge bruisers that dominate their central clusters that they live in and have luminosities ranging anywhere from a million to a trillion times the luminosity of the sun. The very brightest galaxies in the universe are the giant elliptical galaxies. Now, the dynamics is that they don't have a disk at all. They're pure spheroids. Imagine you could take the disk of the Milky Way out of the Milky Way and leave its spheroid and halo behind. It would superficially resemble an elliptical galaxy. There'd be some differences that clued you in that it used to be in a spiral, but its shape would be very elliptical in nature. What we see when we can examine the individual stars is it's a spheroid of very old stars with very little gas or dust. Any star formation that occurred in these systems occurred a long, long time ago and burned up all the available gas. Basically, these things are pressure supported. They're supported by pressure now, not so much of gas pressure, but basically by all the stars being on long elliptical orbits for the most part, stretching all the way out to the outer parts of the halo. These are basically all spheroid. Now, some of these do a very, very slow rotation. Some of them rotate a little faster, some of them rotate a little slower, and that gives some details to their shape. But for the most part, you can think of these things as basically buzzing beehives of billions, of billions or trillions of stars. And they may do a slow, tumbling rotation, but for the most part, just like a swarm of bees, they're simply buzzing all over the place, feeling the mutual gravity of all the other stars and buzzing around with appropriate speeds. Irregular galaxies also have a very wide range of mass. They range from about a million times the mass of the sun. A couple of them can actually get up to kind of spiral galaxy type sizes of about, oh, say, 10 or 100 billion times the mass of the sun. The diameters tend to range from 1 to 10 kiloparsecs. That's the diameter where the stars are. The gas diameters can be very, very much larger. And their luminosities can range from a few million up to a few billion times the luminosity of the sun. They do not approach the sizes or luminosities or stellar content of the largest spirals and the largest ellipticals. They're smaller. Their structure is extremely chaotic. They have lots and lots of young blue stars. That's consonant with the fact they've got lots and lots of gas, and those chaotic motions are very strongly conducive to continuing ongoing star formation. So we see a lot of the young stars. They do tend to have a little bit of moderate rotation. They're not rotating as fast as the spirals, somewhat consist consistent with the fact that they've got a lower mass. If you've got a lower mass, there's less gravity. You're not going to rotate as fast. But they also tend to show a lot of chaotic motions in the gas. These things are very, very stirred up. They're not dynamically very relaxed at all. So these are pretty much just like their shape is, is irregular, so too their internal motions are irregular and chaotic. So the words chaotic, irregular, totally messed up are good descriptions for the irregular galaxies.
Now, we've mentioned a bit about the stellar and gas content. This is a really strong distinction between the spirals, ellipticals, and irregulars, how much relative amounts of gas and dust they have. In the spiral galaxies, if I assay the Milky Way, of its mass, only about 10 to 20% of the mass compared to the mass of stars is made up of gas. The Milky Way has converted most of its available gas already into stars. A lot of it's in the bulge and spheroid, and of course, you're continually building new stars in the disk of the galaxy. There's lots of ongoing star formation. So what you see, if you take apart the galaxy into individual stars and measure the brightness of the stars and the types of stars, spiral galaxies are a mix of population one, disk young disk population, and population two, old spheroid. So a spiral galaxy is a mix of pop one and pop two, lots of ongoing star formation, a lot of gas, so there's still enough for on to fuel ongoing star formation. The ellipticals, by contrast, have little or no gas or dust. It's very, very hard to find gas inside of these things. And when we do find gas, it usually comes out to be a handful of molecular clouds worth if I could gather it all together into molecular clouds. A lot of that gas, when it's there, turns out to be very, very hot gas. The star formation ended billions of years ago. I don't see young stars. In fact, I don't see A stars, for the most part, except in some really wacky objects. Mostly what I see are G and K and M giant stars. Those are old, evolved populations. Those are telling me that the star formation probably shut off 8, 9, 10 billion years ago. Because if the star formation didn't shut off back then, I'd see younger stars, and I just don't see them. If you broke up an elliptical galaxy into populations, elliptical galaxies are pretty much pure pop two. Mostly a metal-rich pop two, but a population two. So it's very different from what we see in spirals, where we see a mix of pop one and pop two. It's mostly an old population two object. That's why people thought for a long time they were like the bulges of spiral galaxies. But in fact, there are some significant differences which allow us to distinguish them. The irregulars, on the other hand, can be up to 90% of gas compared to stars. So these things have barely gotten around to the problem of forming their gas into stars. So there's only about a 10% stellar content. In fact, if I look at a typical irregular galaxy, I see sort of a little puddle of stars, and then I go look at it with a radio telescope sensitive to the emission lines of hydrogen gas, and suddenly the irregular galaxy gets huge. It's a gigantic puddle of gas with a bundle of stars sitting there embedded down in the center. They're still forming a lot of stars right now, and they've got a long ways to go before they'll form more. One of the things that makes them so inefficient at forming stars is in spiral galaxies, the star formation is mediated by the spiral arms. But there is no ordered rotation, differential rotation, or spiral structure in these things. So the star formation is more random. It's more stochastic, and it's hard to get going. If I look at the light, it's dominated by population one stars. In fact, some of the smallest irregular galaxies, I see something I don't see anywhere in the Milky Way hot, young, super metal-poor stars. Well, I would have expected the progenitors of population two would have looked like 10 billion years ago in our own galaxy. I can see that process just starting. Those are galaxies, because they're metal-poor, are just now getting around to forming their stars. Already, 13 billion years into the history of the, of the universe. So they're very interesting to study because they give us a window on what star formation may have been like during the first or second generations of stars that gave rise to the assembly of the Milky Way. Finally, and then the ones that are really interesting are these so-called dwarf irregulars. Some of these things have less than a percent of the solar content of metals, and they may, in some of them, 
be forming stars for the very first time. These are extremely interesting systems, and they're exceedingly rare. We only know of a handful of these around the region where the Milky Way lives. Now, there's a final group of galaxies called the dwarf galaxies. The dwarf galaxies are low-luminosity irregulars and low-luminosity ellipticals. These are the tiniest of these things. There are a significant number of these things. In fact, if you just pay attention to the lowest luminosity objects, the universe suddenly becomes lousy with these things. The number of these things begins to multiply very rapidly as you go to fainter and fainter limits. Now, while there are dwarf ellipticals and dwarf irregulars, nobody has yet found a convincing dwarf spiral. There's always one or two announcements of same, but it's such a completely strange object. It doesn't actually, doesn't really qualify as a class of anything. Now, there's a couple of possibilities for what's going on, why they're dwarf galaxies. The first of these on this list is that this simply is a, literally a dwarf. It's basically a small version of the big thing. In that picture, what I expect is all I've done is say, I'm going to build an elliptical galaxy of a trillion stars, and I've only got a few million left, so I'll take those and form them into an elliptical over here. Now, that kind of works okay, but when you start looking at these things in detail, significant differences in structure, density, other properties begin to come into play that begin to question, am I really just, is, am I really just seeing the small end of what is a range of very large subjects, or are they very different things? And that brings us to the second question, is whether or not these things are the low end of the elliptical sequence, or whether they're actually a separate population of objects which only bear certain superficial resemblances because, well, let's face it, there's only so many ways that gravity can bring together and assemble a whole bunch of stars in the influence of their mutual gravity. And so maybe these things are much more fundamental than we think. And one of the things we think, in fact, is that these are fundamental building blocks out of which larger galaxies are assembled. And so the resemblance in many ways really is superficial. Because they're small, because they're faint, they're very hard to study. They're, they're really hard to get a good handle on. And so it's a terribly active area of research today to find, study, and try to understand the physics of dwarf galaxies. It's very challenging. It's been made possible by combinations of the Hubble Space Telescope and the next generation of big telescopes. To give an idea of just kind of how low it can go, this is a dwarf spheroidal galaxy called LEO-1. On a photographic plate, it's literally a smudge. This is a beautiful picture from the digitized sky digital sky survey. Um, you can count the individual stars in this. This is a satellite of the Milky Way. This thing is so small that we would not be able to see these things if they were common beyond our own local group of galaxies because they would simply fade into the night sky. So a big question now is whether these things make up a lot of the galaxy population or not. We don't know. We only know of that you know, few teens that are around us in Andromeda and a couple of nearby groups of galaxies, but beyond that, we simply couldn't see such things are so faint. This is a dwarf irregular. Again, you can see the individual stars, but what distinguishes them from the dwarf ellipticals is all of the star formation still going on. Here's hot gas being lit up by all the hot O and B stars that you can see as the blue bright knots. This beautiful photograph by my colleague Phil Massey at the National Observatory of this dwarf irregular, which is also a satellite of our local group of galaxies. So what do we have here? Well, galaxies of all types, spirals, ellipticals, and irregulars, are the basic units of luminous matter throughout the universe. As I begin to trace larger and larger structures in the universe, I'm going to trace it with galaxies, not with stars. Stars vanish into these larger assemblies. 
They're also the sites of star formation from raw gas. Galaxies are factories for the creation of stars, and those stars themselves are the factories for the production of heavy elements. So I can trace a lot of the history of the universe by tracing the history of galaxies. And what we're going to be doing over the next couple of lectures is looking at how those galaxies form those tracers. The bottom line, however, is that the differences of the types of galaxies that I've shown you today reflect differences in their star formation history. Did they form all their stars at once a long time ago, or are they still forming them like our Milky Way and spirals today? And their environments. And we'll see that environmental aspect in the next couple of lectures.